My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Back in 2010, I recorded an interview with 86-year-old Frank Vinicum at Falmouth. Known affectionately as the Mako Man, Frank is widely regarded as a UK expert on the subject of catching Mako sharks and as such was the right man to see regarding that particular story. Or so I thought. Because shortly after going live with the recording on audio angling, I received an email from David Turner, who was the last man ever to catch a Mako shark in UK waters. In this, David suggested that Frank's recollections were not entirely accurate, particularly in his assertion that as a Falmouth charter skipper back in the 1960s and 70s, when Mako sharks were still being regularly caught, he'd been responsible for providing his clients with more Mako sharks than anyone else in the UK. There was no contesting Frank's undoubted knowledge of the species. It was just the numbers. Records gathered together by David for his 2012 book The Shark Fisherman, published by Little Egret Press in Cornwall, suggest that it was in fact Frank's brother Robin Vinicum, also a charter skipper from Falmouth, who in fact had the better Mako shark track record. David also pointed out that as there was a great deal of sibling rivalry and not a lot of love lost between the pair, as a point of accuracy, and for the sake of history, these facts needed to be put right. This then led us on to the wider subject of sharks more generally in UK waters and to the extensive amount of research into the subject done by David to produce the book. A great opportunity then to explore this topic a little more deeply. And with David now living in Ireland and me over here in Lancashire, another chance for me to try out the telephone interview technique. Now you and I differ in age only by one year, which puts us both at Lewin Cornwall at the very height of shark fishing popularity during the early to mid-1960s, a time when sharks were viewed very differently to the way that people see them today. Also a time when all sharks caught were brought ashore to be hung upon the quay, no doubt to prompt the next batch of holidaymakers to nip down to Jack Bray's tackle shop a few doors down from the weighing station and book themselves in onto a trip. So what do you remember about those days? Well, my first experience with shark fishing was at Lou because obviously back then Lou got all the publicity and it seemed to be the place to go. So when I first went shark fishing, I booked a place on the Paula with Jack Butters. And in actual fact, it was after the winter of 1963, the very cold winter. So there wasn't all that many sharks caught that year partly due to the low temperatures and partly due to the amount of fresh water going into the sea. Well, that was a theory anyway. What happened was we went out and he actually anchored Jack Butters and we started fishing for Pollock. At that time, I didn't even know what a Pollock was. I'd never even seen one before. But he did put a couple of shark lines out, but um, also he never used any rubby-dubby, which surprised me a bit. And obviously we didn't catch any sharks that day. But we did catch about 20 stone of large pollock. So my first trip wasn't very successful at all as far as the sharks were concerned. When we came in that day, there were a few sharks weighed, but not very many. It wasn't a very good season at all back in 1963. The following year, I'd booked to go with Jack Butters again on the Paula. But when we got to Lou in the morning, I was told in Jack Bray's shop that I'd been transferred to another boat. Um, I think it was Moby Dick with Johnny Faulkner. And again, we went out and 
caught a few whiting and bits and pieces, but no sharks. The thing that upset me that day was that when the Paula came in, they had a hundred pounder and a couple of small ones as well. So uh, I think that was the last time we ever fished at Lou. <laughs> what do you remember about Lou as a port? It may well have been the self-acclaimed UK shark fishing capital, but in my experience it tended to cater more for the passing holiday visitor trade rather than the serious angler. At that time it was, yes. I mean, the crowds that used to line up on the quay when the shark boats came in, there was two or three hundred, was nothing unusual. And it was a very popular spectacle back in those days. And with so many novices boarding the boats, the tackle obviously would need to be chosen accordingly. Again, what can you tell us about that? The tackle we used on the Paula, they were actually uh, split cane rods and hardy four tuna centre pin reels. The sort of stuff that was originally designed for tuna fishing up off Scarborough. From memory, Lou seemed to peak around the mid-1980s, after which the catching of blue sharks, certainly for holiday visitors, slipped into decline. What was your experience in that regard, or was Lou and blue shark fishing something of the past for you by that stage? Well... After that, I did have a trip booked the following year from Lou, but the weather was so bad we never actually got out, and after that I never fished from Lou again. The following year, I did most of my fishing, apart from Lou, I also fished at Newquay, which is where I caught my first shark. But then the skipper I used to fish with at Newquay packed up, and so I then started fishing with Robin Vinicum at Falmouth. And there was obviously always a lot of rivalry between Lou and Falmouth. Lou got all the publicity, but it was actually Falmouth that had the higher catch rate per boat. And this, I take it, was the start of your interest in Mako sharks? Yes, well, um, the thing that attracted me to Falmouth in the first place was I used to get the Anglin Times regularly every week for years, and there seemed to be more Makos caught in Falmouth than anywhere else. And in particular, Robin Vinicum always seemed to get one or two every year. So that's basically why I started fishing with him in the first place. Of course, Lou wasn't the only port catching lots of sharks, though it has to be said, in terms of turnover due to the casual holiday angling trade, it certainly seemed to have the monopoly. Plymouth, Polpero and Mavigissi also saw plenty of blues. So too did Falmouth. But Falmouth was to make its reputation with a totally different type of shark fishing, and a species which really did deserve some respect, having come to angling's attention in the mid-1950s after Hetty Ethon had submitted a record claim for a poor beagle from Lou, which turned out to be the first ever authenticated UK mako shark. That's right. She caught, um, I think it was £352, and they sent off to ICFA, the International Game Fish Association, claiming a world record for a poor beagle, and ICFA got back to them saying, it's not a poor beagle, it's a mako. And from then on, they realised that there was actually the two species of uh, shark present in British waters. And you say it was the teeth that gave it away. But there are other features too, so for completeness, we might as well do a quick run through these as well. The main one is the teeth. They've both got similar shaped teeth in that they're sort of like curved needles, but the poor beagle has also got two smaller teeth at the base of the main tooth. Although people that know about sharks can pretty much tell at an instant the difference between the two. There are other differences. I mean, the shape of the dorsal fin on a mako is more pointed than a poor beagle. The poor beagle's got a light patch at the rear base of the dorsal fin. And just the general shape, the poor beagle's a lot stockier. The mako's a lot more streamlined. Even at a glance, you can see the difference. Mako's teeth appear to be bursting out of the mouth, 
They are, yes. They're a lot longer than the poor eagle, and they're even visible when the mouth is closed quite often. What about the more subtle differences, such as feeding habits and geographical range? Well, the poor eagle is very widely ranged. They right down from the Mediterranean right up to Scandinavia. As far as I know, no mako sharks have been caught on Rodden Line north of the English Channel, but I found out recently that there was one caught by a commercial fisherman off the north of Scotland early last century, and also a survey done by the Irish Fisheries Board a few years back on a Japanese longliner. They caught three to the west of Rockall on the longlines, so they seem to be a lot further north than originally thought, although they are very rare. But as I say, I've heard none caught on Rodden Line further north than the English Channel. Your early shark-specific interest did eventually become much more refined and targeted over time. And while you did continue to fish for the blues and poor beagles, the mako, it seems, became much more of a fascination. What then was the particular draw there? Well, back then, I mean, everyone was fishing for makos, really. I mean, most people never even saw one. They, they were never very common. And most people just caught blue sharks. But I think, certainly serious anglers, everyone was actually after a mako. That's basically what they wanted to catch. Including yourself. But with numbers caught for the UK, still only at around 45 in total, how did you rate your chances back in those early days? A little bit better than nil. <laughs> <laughs> as good as that, eh? Yeah. <laughs> on a good day. <laughs> there are five similar-looking members of the shark family Lamnidae, three of which either definitely do or definitely could visit British waters. Two of these are classed as being cold water species, those being the poor beagle and the great white. The other, the mako, is more of a warm water fish. We seem to have a spate of the things up to the time that you caught the last one ever recorded in British waters back in 1971. Yet since that time, sea temperatures have been rising, bringing to us all manner of fish and other marine life we rarely, if ever, previously got to see, while at the same time, mako visits dropped off. So what do you think is going on there? I think it's mainly because, well, after 1972, shark numbers generally dropped off dramatically. It wasn't even a gradual fall-off. It was almost a case of they were there one year and gone the next. And then for several years following that there were very few sharks caught at all i believe now they are there again if they weren't always there because there have been a few encounters over the last four or five years but the tackle used now on the whole just won't handle a maker the tackle people use now is quite like tackle primarily for blue sharks and if they hook a mako it just strips the line off the reel could part of the problem also be that with the declining blue shark fishing a mere fraction of the rubby-dubby once used is finding its way into the water, which would also draw in other species such as the mako. It could be that there are still makos out there, but with chance encounters, as in the 1960s and 1970s now pretty much gone, are we seeing an almost artificial decline in mako numbers? I certainly think there's something in that. I mean, there was at the height of it, there was about something like 27 boats going out of loo every day. Even Falmouth, they were fishing a slightly smaller area but there were seven or eight boats going out putting rubby dubby in the water every single day so there is probably something in that and there's not the amount of rubby dubby going into the water now and obviously not as many people actually fishing that there was in back then in your opinion then there are still catchable mako sharks out there it's just that they're not being caught yet 
I know of three instances over the last three or four years where they've been um, seen or encountered. There was that incident that made the national headlines where Frank Winnicombe had one jump out the side of his boat. I've no doubt that that probably was a Mako. And there's another farmer skipper called Nigel Hodge. He runs a boat called Wave Chieftain, I think it's called. He has actually hooked two over the last two or three years. He's described them to me, and it certainly sounds like a Mako. The first one he hooked stripped all the line from his reel in a few seconds. The second one actually jumped out the water and threw the hook, which certainly sounds like Mako's to me. What about reports on the Irish scene? They also used to pick up a few off the southwest tip. Living in Ireland as you do, you're certainly well placed for information on that particular grapevine. Personally, I've heard of nothing at all of any Makos being encountered off Ireland at all, apart from that survey that the Fisheries Board did on the longliner west of Rockall. Obviously, some very good Makos, including Joyce Yallop's current £500 record, came from Lou. But despite the numbers and arguments between the Vinnikan brothers Robin and Frank, there's no disputing Falmer's monopoly with the species, many of which came from quite close to the shore around the Manacles Reef, as opposed to the more open water blue shark grounds. So what can you tell us about that? It probably was to do with the area around the Manacles. There's very strong tide races around there. There's a lot of rough ground, certainly off towards the west of Falmouth. The sea bottom is very rough, so there's a lot of pollock and ling around that area, which the makers would obviously feed on. So I think that's probably what attracted them more to the area around Falmouth. I suppose that people specifically targeting makers from Falmouth out over the right kind of brown would also greatly increase their chances of success. Yes, no one ever actually went out on any one particular day fishing for Makos, either at Falmouth or Lou, but there were certain areas you were more likely to catch them. I mean, off Lou it would be the Eddystone Reef, off Falmouth it would obviously be the area around the Manacles and round Kovrak up towards Blackhead, that's where most of them were caught. To a large extent, shark fishing is shark fishing. It all pretty much follows the same basic rules. That said, there will have been things such as bay, rubby-dubby choices and locations that would stack the odds slightly more in the favour of a targeted species taking the bait. So let's pick out a few of the potential tactical differences between catching makos and blues. Well, back then, um, the sort of tackle people were using would handle any shark. It was a lot heavier. There was no way of specifically fishing for a mako. We sometimes used large mackerel live baits, which gave a slightly better chance. But nowadays, you'd have to use heavier tackle than most people use. What about water depth and seabed makeup? Yes, the rougher the ground uh, obviously attracts larger food fish like pollock, ling, that sort of thing, which the makers feed on. So you've got more chance of encountering one over rough ground than you have over a smooth bottom in open seas. As a piece of history now, talk us through the day you caught your fish. Yes, well... I actually used to stay with Robin. I knew him and his wife very well, and I used to stay with him when I went down to Falmouth, and he just happened to remark, we were chatting one evening, and he just happened to remark to me, because he used to keep a record of all his catches, that um, all the makos he'd caught were within three or four days of the full moon at the end of June. So for the next two years, I booked my holidays for that week, The first year, my friend Phil Taylor caught a 370-pounder, which still holds the 80-pound class record. And then the following year, I went back down the same week, thinking that 
most people never even encounter with Mako. I've seen mine now and that's it for life. I'm never going to see another one. And halfway through the week, there was nothing special about the day. We just went out, normal shark fishing trip. And we didn't get anything for about two hours. And I think it's about ten to one. I just had a very light take on the line, just a couple of clicks on the reel. Picked it up, didn't think much of it. Robin was eating his lunch, didn't seem much bothered. We thought it was only a small shark, and he knew I could bring it in myself if I needed to. I started winding it in, and as I started winding it in, I said to him, it's only a small one. And the balloon float was still on the line. It hadn't broken free. And it was probably about 20 feet from the boat, and suddenly the balloon just shot across the surface. And as it did, the line just screamed from the reel, and both myself and Robin, both together at the same time, just yelled out, Mako. And he started the boat's engines, and we got the other lines in it. It just ran off about 350 yards. Very fast. But the strange thing about it was it didn't jump, because nearly all Makos, at the end of the first run, they jump out of the water. And then it was just a matter of toing and froing, zigzagging backwards and forwards. Stayed pretty much high in the water. It didn't dive very deep. But every time I got line back, it just took off again, 100 yards run, very fast. And then we even began to wonder if it was a Mako, because we didn't see it for 45 minutes. Very unusual for a Mako, they nearly always jump out of the water. But um, we were starting to think maybe it was a tuna or, or even a swordfish, because they'd both been sighted off Cornwall. And then, after three quarters of an hour, the tip of its fin just broke the surface. And Robin said, oh, it is a Mako, it's a small one. But then it, it came higher up in the water, and he said, oh, it's not all that small after all. But even then, it took another half an hour to get it alongside the boat, zigzagging backwards and forwards, the occasional fast run. But we eventually got it alongside the boat. And um, I was amazed at the size of it, just looking over the side of the boat, seeing it there lying alongside. It looked massive. And what were your feelings at that stage? When we got it alongside the boat and got the gaff into it, I was very relieved. Because although it was exciting the whole of the time I had it on the line, there was always that feeling in the back of my mind that it might suddenly throw the hook. In fact, at one stage, the line did go slack. And I said to Robin, it's gone, I've lost it. And he said, no, you haven't, it's coming back towards the boat, winding as fast as you can. So I did, and the, and the line came tight again. And the fish turned and ran off again about another 150 yards. But um, it was a great relief when we got it alongside the boat. And obviously, back in those days, such fish would automatically be brought into the boat. Yes, we did, yeah, yeah. And of course, the fish would then wind up dead. Looking back with the luxury of informed hindsight, would you not prefer to touch the trace, then go for an in-water release, or would you still want to bring the thing into the boat and put it onto the scales? No, I don't think I would now. I've got no need to now. I've, I've caught one. If it is possible, bring it into the boat and I'd measure it and... Um, do a length and girth measurement on it to get a rough estimate of the weight but then we put it back again but if it was too big to bring into the boat we just cut it free and, and let it go i got no reason to bring them in now right it's on to your favorite subject the huge north cornish poor beagle caught by wayne common and graham pullen earlier this year <laughs> you don't think then that whatever its weight that fish rates is actually having been caught if touching the trace counts as catching it Personally, I don't think it does. I personally wouldn't 
count of fish that I'd brought alongside the boat as having been caught unless I got in the boat. In fact, I have had fish out the side of the boat, which I've touched the trace, and then they've gone away and broken the line. There's a bit of controversy over the equal rules because their record rules still insist that you have to bring the fish into the boat, but in tournaments, some tournaments, they say that just touching the, the trace or the leader, as they call it, counts as being caught, so that the angling community is sort of split on that point. Andrew Allsop, for example, the skipper down at uh, Milford Haven, he insists that for a fish to be caught, it has to be brought into the boat. As regards uh, that particular fish itself, obviously I wasn't there, and I'm only going off what I've seen on the video, which I've now watched several times, and my own personal impression was that it wasn't a fish anywhere near that size. When I first saw it, that was just my opinion. I've since spoken to several charter boat skippers and other anglers that are very experienced in shark fishing, and every one has said that fish was no bigger than £350. That's still one very big fish. It is. Oh, yeah, it's a very good fish. There's no denying that. But as for 550, well, I don't think many people believe that. <laughs> but surely it's immoral, not to mention in the case of the poor beagle, also illegal to catch such a big shark simply to hang it from a scale. So is there not an argument now for some alternative to removal from the water, and certainly against killing such fish, by bringing in records based on measurement, perhaps even leading to weight estimation? I think the only way you can get an indication of the size now, it has to be brought into the boat and it has to have a length and girth measurement. If it's left in the water, there's no real way of getting a very accurate estimation at all. It looks like the Record Fish Committee have got themselves a problem then. You can't legally bring poor because ashore now for weighing and the committee won't accept estimates based on measurements in a boat. Equally, they can't afford to be seen as encouraging anglers to flout the law. So the poor beagle, as well as the taupe, common skate and undulate rare records, either need to be removed from the list, or displayed for historical reasons only, despite the fact that it isn't illegal to catch and release the things. It seems to me that there is no alternative left these days other than weight estimation. Well, I think as far as recording is concerned now, you can't really have records. Well, certainly not in the old way. I think if you measure the length of the fish and the girth, it's not very accurate, but if everyone does the same and, and follows the same formula, at least you can have some sort of standard, so to speak. But you're not going to get absolutely accurate records. I mean, even back in the days when they used to bring them in and hang them up, there was a lot of variation because, for example, Joyce Yollop's £500 record, it was brought into the port, lashed to the side of the boat with his head facing forward and his mouth open, so it could have taken in quite a lot of water on the way in. After they'd waited, they got a 56-pound conger out of his stomach. The shark that Phil Taylor caught, the, the first mako I saw, disgorged a 50-pound monkfish at the side of the boat, so that lost 50 pounds before it came into the boat. The shark I caught was a very thin shark. It was actually six inches longer than Joyce Yollop's shark, and if it had had the same girth as Joyce Yollop's shark, it had been nearer 600 pounds. So even back then, it was just a matter of basically what the fish had eaten. Well, when I brought up the touching of the trace initially, I was thinking actually of a shark you mentioned to me in conversation before switching the voice recorder on. This was a monster of a thing which you're convinced was a great white, though that was never verified, so it doesn't count as part of the UK fauna, yet. In that instance, the fish was at the side of the boat and the trace was touched. 
So where does that one stand in the great scheme of things? Yes, this was the shark that Doug Phillips hooked back in 1965. It was uh, about 14 foot long. He hooked it and within minutes they had it alongside the boat and there was about seven or eight people on board the boat that day. In fact, I've since spoken to a guy whose friend was actually on board that day and he's confirmed everything I said. Robin had the trait in his hand, but he knew a fish of that size. If he tried to gaff it then, it was still full of life and it had just pulled him over the side or done all sorts of things. So he just prodded it and it took off. And for the next four and a half hours, Doug had it on the line. For an hour and a half, it was actually swimming round the boat on the surface. Everyone could see it. And then the trace just frayed through. And the fact that a steel trace was frayed through suggests to me serrated teeth, which wouldn't have been a mako. The size at 14 foot would have been an enormous for an mako. And it just sounds to me the most likely thing it was was a great white. What do you think then of the potential for a great white being authenticated in British waters? Is it inevitable? After all, they can generate internal body heat up to 10 degrees above ambient, so cold water, rather than being a problem, is actually preferred. Maybe there isn't sufficient high-protein food for them, though seals these days are hardly in short supply. I personally think they visit now. They may not come very often. I mean, there may be a few here every year. We don't know. Then They're certainly not very common, but there's also... I've talked to a guy in Scotland and also... Richard Pearce, the chairman of the Shark Trust, he has recorded several, which he calls credible great white sightings around the British coast. There's about three off the north coast of Cornwall. But this particular one off Scotland, he's mentioned in his book, which is called Sharks in British Waters. But I've spoken to a guy that lives up that way, and it was actually seen by a lot more people than he knew about. Several of them were commercial fishermen, all of them had never seen a shark like it before. But they'd seen hundreds of basking sharks. And when they were showing pictures of various types of sharks, all of them agreed that it was a... They all pointed out a great white. There was a dead seal washed up on a UK beach with damage that had it been found off, say, the South African coast, would have been listed as a great white attack. But because it was Britain, it gets labelled as boat damage. I've seen the picture. That is a shark bite. I'm convinced of it. I mean, I've, I've heard the stories that it was floating in the water and seagulls just pecked away at the bit that was above the surface and this sort of thing, but that, that's rubbish. I've seen the picture. That is a shark bite. It's very clean and it's semicircular. It's not a pecking mark or anything like that. It's definitely a shark bite. And a big shark? Difficult to say because you can't see how big the seal is, but certainly it's a big clean chunk out of the carcass. So it's a shark big enough to slice straight into a seal and take a big clean chunk out of it, yeah. I actually read a report a couple of years ago about a marine biologist who was scuba diving close in off the Isle of Skye and who was circled repeatedly by what he described as being a great white shark. Surely a person with those credentials has to be a credible enough witness. That's actually the one I was talking about. As I say, I've talked to a guy who lives up that way and he knew about the divers that sighted it, but... It was seen by commercial fishermen up there and also ferrymen that uh, ferry people between the islands up there. They'd seen it as well. In, in the space of about two weeks, I think it was seen about seven or eight times. 
Widening the debate a little more now, despite the glaring absence of make over the past 35 years or so and the continued lack of authenticated great white visits, rising sea temperatures are starting to bring other shark species ever closer to the British Isles. Hammerheads have been commercially caught off the Cornish coast and oceanic white tips reported, though once again, as with the great white, not to a level that would satisfy inclusion as part of Britain's marine fauna. What other species do you think we might also see in the near future? Well, I've heard several reports of hammerheads being encountered over the years. Probably about 10 years ago now, there was a helicopter crew on exercise from Cold Rose in Cornwall, and they reported seeing three large hammerhead sharks off Mullion Cove on the surfaces they were flying over. And I've heard rumours of them being caught in nets at various times. The white tip was one that was seen off St Ives about three years ago. I don't think there was any official authentication of that it was it was just a report if you have the body or even a tooth from a particular shark species it would be difficult to deny its presence but that unfortunately isn't always possible so what other measures of proof are there out there to give a sighting authenticity i suppose you'd have to have a very good photograph of something one that would definitely identify it as a minimum Obviously, if you've got a a body, that would be even more, but most people these days, if they catch a shark, don't want to bring it in. So just a good photograph that would show the main features of it. With your undoubted experience with Britain's three proper shark species, and as the capture of the last Mako shark caught in UK waters, you more than anyone are in pole position when it comes to water recruitment on the subject, and as such, your book The Shark Fishing was published in 2012. Well, I've been thinking about writing a book about it for about 35 years, but never got round to it. I was lucky, I suppose, in that I caught the last Mako in British waters, which gave me a bit of an edge in some respects. And about, I suppose it's about five years ago now, I thought, I'll have a go at writing a book, but I never thought at that time that I'd ever get enough together to actually to make a book out of it. I'd written articles over the years for fishing magazines, but I started writing it and just sort of carried on. There were several times I thought, I can't be bothered with this, I'm never going to finish it, and, and more or less gave up. Then other ideas came into my head and I just added to it, and eventually there it was, it was finished. This book I know involved a lot of very intense research into Mako catches, and with the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain having incredibly destroyed all the years of record keeping, this now represents the most complete UK data set on the species. Well, the book I've already written now is mainly my own personal experience. I'm now working on a possible second book specifically about Makos, and that's where my research has come in. In actual fact, it all started about uh, two or three years ago when I saw all the reports in the national press and local papers down in Cornwall about Frank Vinicom having caught more Makos than anyone else ever, and even more than everyone else put together and this sort of thing. And I I thought at the time, well, this just isn't true. I knew that from my own first-hand experience, but I couldn't say anything then because it would have been just my word against his and I had no evidence. So I initially wrote to the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain saying, have you got records of all the Mako catches in Great Britain to check the records to see how many Frank actually did catch? And after several months and chasing them, they admitted that someone somewhere along the line had thrown the records out, so there was no records of Mako catches in British waters. So at first I thought, um, well, that's that then. But then I thought, well, why can't I research it myself? So I started phoning a few people and, and contacting people that were there at the time, 
and then I went up uh, last September to the Anglian Times offices and I went right back through all the copies of the Anglian Times during the shark fishing season from May till October, right back to when the Anglian Times first started in 1953, and literally just looked up every report of Mako catches in there. So I now got together probably the most comprehensive list of catches of Mako sharks in British waters, right back to 1953. So what is the actual running total to date? Well, on my list there's 45. There may be the odd one or two that I have missed. There was one I seem to remember from my own personal experience. There was one caught off Sulcombe in the mid-60s of about £350, but I haven't been able to find any record of that anywhere at all. That's just my own personal experience. But I've actually got a list of 45 Makos now. And on that list of 45 fish, you should also have 44 different angler names, because as I understand it, only one person has ever caught more than one. That's Ted Belston. He actually caught two with Robin in on consecutive years, but he was the only person to ever catch more than one. Any other observations or trends to come out of the data you've collected so far? Um, Robin caught a third of all the ones ever caught. He actually caught 15. I've got his complete list now of all the ones he caught. The second to Robin was Jack Butters at Lou on the Paulo. He caught five. Also at Lou, two were once caught in the same day. That's right. That was July the 31st, 1963, two weeks before I actually went shark fishing for the first time. I can't remember the exact boats at the time. I think one was £310 and one was about 298 But again, that was the only time that two were caught in one day. Do you think that your 1971 Mako will remain the last one ever caught in British waters? And if not, why, when and where? Well, it shouldn't be. It's difficult to say. I'm pretty convinced they're still there. But as I said earlier, it, it depends on, on the tackle. Most tackle used these days won't handle a Mako. If someone specifically had the time to fish for them, they could probably go out there and catch one eventually using the right tackle and, and actually having the time to go and do it. I know Nigel Hodge down at Myler there near Falmouth, who runs a charter boat, is quite keen himself to try and contact one and he has now got stronger tackle, but I don't think since he's had the stronger tackle he's actually hooked one. But it's quite possible there will be one caught again. I think Falmouth's the most likely place. So you're optimistic? Reasonably so, yeah. Yeah, I can't see any reason why someone shouldn't catch one at some point. And might that someone possibly be you? I hope so. <laughs> Although I'm more interested in a thresher at the moment because I'd be the first person to catch all four species of British game sharks if I caught a thresher. No one's ever done it. Well, you've already got the hardest one out of the way. Yes, um, again, Nigel Hodge hooked two Last year, I think it was, he had one alongside the boat, about £350, and he hooked another one and lost it. Talking to Steve Mills recently, who holds the thresher record, he reckons that a small live bait worked deep and lots of rubby-dubby is the key in one particular narrow corridor where he operates. Have you any specific plans that might enhance your chances of completing your four-species objective? It's very difficult with threshers. I know that probably the best place is off the Isle of Wight, but even there, it's, it's a bit like fishing for magos back in Cornwall in the 60s and 70s. You've got to put the time in. Back then, I was fishing for three to four weeks solid every summer for about nearly 10 years. I literally used to go out every single day of my holidays. 
So I was probably doing 30 trips a year for about 10 years. And I think probably if you did the same sort of thing off the Isle of Wight, you'd get a thresher at some point. Steve put in similar amounts of time on the threshers that you did with the Makos, and as a result had three to the boat. Then for a few years after that, they unfortunately saw nothing, after which they knocked it on the head. There have been quite a few off Cornwall the last few years. Certainly a lot more than there was back in the 60s and 70s. There was uh, a commercial boat that had a £500 last year. There was one over £1,000. I don't know if his net had all got tangled in lines off Land's End a couple of years ago. And there's been quite a few caught by commercial fishermen off Cornwall in recent years. So you see it as a strong possibility then? Yes, I suppose that the chances are about the same as catching a Mako back in the 60s or 70s. If you put in all the hours and the time, you, there's a, a reasonable chance you'll hook one at some point. Final question. What does the future hold for David Turner? Well, I've just teamed up with a local skipper here, back in, in Clue Bay, near Clue Bay, where I now live. When we moved over here a few years back, I was keen to go shark fishing here, but no one seemed interested. A couple of skippers actually told me that there's no sharks out there, that they'd all been taken by Japanese longliners. But they're catching them a few miles south, and then they're catching them a few miles north, so I'm pretty convinced they're out there. And I've just, um, I've been recently been talking to a local skipper, youngest chap, he's set up three years ago, and he's very keen to give it a try, so... In May, we're going to go out and just have a sort of shakedown trip, try out the tackle and everything, and also see if we can't catch a, a large poor beagle off the entrance to Clue Bay, which is where the Irish record was caught 81 years ago, I think it is now. Um, I've been talking to a marine biologist at the Irish Elasma Brank group, who also thinks that's a good place to catch a mature poor beagle shark. So we're going to have a go at that, and then we've got a two-day trip organised in June when we're going out for two days to see what we can catch then as well. So there you have it. Are we suffering a lack of Mako visits or simply a lack of shark fishing attention? You obviously see it as the latter and also think it's only a matter of time. But with over 40 years now having elapsed since you caught yours, shouldn't the law of averages have played its hand before today? I know that you're optimistic and are still looking to put these theories to the test. Wouldn't it be ironic then if, after all this time, it turned out to be you who kicked off a new phase of Mako shark fishing with a positive result? So good luck in that particular venture, and thanks for giving up your time to tell the Mako story here. Mm-hmm.